Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Please stand as we enter into worship together.
you received a connect card, which also has a prayer card on the back of it. If you're new, this is one of your weeks where either you've had a change of address or email or new to the church, we'd love for you to fill out that connect card so that we can get in touch with you and give you an update on what is going on at the church and events we have upcoming. On the other side, the prayer card, we do pray for this congregation and for our visitors. So if there's anything, whether it's praise or something you just need need uh, some some real considerate prayer for, because there's something going on in your life right now, or for someone you know, please do let us know, um, because this is a church that's centered on prayer, and we'd love to help out in that way. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Pastor Steve up for the message of the morning. Well, how do you start your day? Uh, do you pick up your phone. I, could, I guess I could probably say I, I could sort out the room in terms of um, generations. Uh, do, you, do you turn on a daytime TV news show? Because you have a TV in your bathroom and in your kitchen, and that's how this Today Show has been your starter for your whole life. Or are you uh, a younger person who says, I start with my phone immediately and I consult my phone? Uh, 
if you're in the military or have been in the military, you'd have a daily briefing. You should open somebody would tell you exactly what is happening in the world and how you need to prepare for it. I had a friend who, uh, when he started his career, he worked in this massive corporation. And every day he would come into his office, he'd open the right, top right uh, hand drawer on his desk, and there'd be a folder, and neatly typed in that folder was a, a memo telling him all of his duties for the day. Uh, what do you use? Uh, wouldn't it be great if um, you had a standing call with somebody who is super smart and, and, and you would, oh, that's right, you do, Siri. And so um, you say, so what's up for today? What should I be aware of? How should I be prepared for the day? Wouldn't it be great to have somebody give you that heads up, that context for what's happening, not just in the world out there, but the world in here? Well, today you're this. Today I can see that you're, wouldn't it be great? Um, this is what Jesus is doing uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in these Beatitudes. Uh, Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, uh, Matthew, who was a tax collector, he was a very detail-oriented guy, he wants to tell us who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why it matters to us. And so after telling us Jesus' genealogy uh, and some introductory information, here we see Jesus speaking to thousands of people, giving them their heads up, giving them the lay of the land, that here's how you should see things, in the very beginning of that, that, that uh, we call book in the Bible. A gospel. And so that's chapter 5. And the rest of it goes through 28 chapters. Really, everything that happens after chapter 5 comes out of that briefing. And so as we're walking through this briefing together, it might seem sort of disembodied, these, these really cryptic sayings, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, blessed are those who are brokenhearted, for they will be comforted. Uh, blessed are the meek, uh, for I don't know what they're going to get, um, a hard time. Uh, no, they inherit the earth. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, these are the ones we've walked through in the last weeks. Now, the, the odd thing about these is it, this represents an upside-down view of the world. Because this idea, hey, it's a great day, you're in debt, you're upside-down, uh, your boyfriend just broke up with you. Uh, you just lost your job. It's going to be great. And you're thinking, this is a bad idea. Uh, this is not really good advice. Uh, uh, some of us uh, in, in this room knew a guy who uh, was a phenomenal businessman and lived a good long life. And uh, he had faced every possible crazy thing in business you'd expect somebody to face. And so if I was ever... Approached by somebody who said, hey, look, my world's upside down. I'm a business guy. I'm, you know, I own $20 million. I this, that, that, the other. This is happening. That's happening. I would say, wow, let's talk about that and, you know, and listen and then talk about what their options were. And I'd say, hey, listen, there's a guy I'd like to introduce you to. And so I'd call him up and I'd say, do you have any time to talk to a guy who is upside down by $20 million? His partners are betraying him. The government is harassing him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He goes, oh, man, I'd love to. So I'd bring these people over to his house, and he would sit there. And I had already briefed him ahead of time. This guy has done everything, and, and he's just like this epic dude. But what he would do is listen to them carefully. Then he'd say, oh, whoa, I can see why you're not sleeping at night. That's outrageous. That's overwhelming. I'll tell you what, if I could, I would swap places with you right now. Because I'm 80 years old. And I look back on all those nights when I couldn't sleep because I owed $50 million dollars for some big deal that wasn't going the way it was supposed to go. When this happened, when that happened, I look back now and I was never more alive because in that time, God did stuff in my life that I could not see coming. I would have never thought possible. And, and every person I bring into his presence would leave saying, this does not make any sense, but I feel so much better. I'm so ready to take on what's in front of me. So Jesus really could have and should have said, Cursed are you. You should be so completely bummed out if you uh, have spiritual poverty because there's just no hope for you. You're lost in the woods and you're not going to find your way out. And by the way, if you're brokenhearted, no comfort coming to you. 
And the idea of you turning the cheek and being meek and being wise and mature in the way you go through the world, not going to work for you. You're gonna get, you won't inherit the earth, you'll get turf in your teeth. And for, the, for those of you who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that's a pipe dream. This is not a righteous world. It's not going to work for you that way. So Jesus then starting to say all these phrases with the word blessed. Blessed are you. It's not happy talk. Uh, there is a very weak uh, way of responding to that word that's used as blessed. And technically it can be used as the word happy. And some have said the happitudes. You know, these are the happy beatitudes. And happy are you. And the problem in our culture is that happy, it sounds like really, it sounds, it's kind of thin. But blessed versus cursed sounds like something is radically different going on here. Something radically uh, unusual is in play right now. I need to listen carefully. Now, these are all uh, prescriptive. Uh, excuse me, descriptive before they're prescriptive. So when Jesus is talking to all these people, he's saying, hey, you are poor. Right where you are in that poverty, God is going to be there for you. His kingdom will be available to you. You who are brokenhearted, who have been trampled through grief and loss, uh, who can't even lift your hand, you're so exhausted from your uh, loss. Uh, you're going to be uh, comforted in the midst of that. And those of you who, and so it, it's a way of saying, this is who you are, and this is exactly where God is. It's not, and if you do this, one day you're going to have the comfort of God. And if you do this, one day, it's all descriptive. This is where you are, this is where God is. And then the rest of the book, after you know, that, that first part, uh, first uh, you know, 10 verses, in chapter 5. The rest of it is then prescriptive. Now go do this. You've heard it said, well I'll tell you, it's this way. And then you get all these examples of things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these memorable stories and parables come following that, that are prescriptive. And here's how you do this. But he starts off right there saying, this is okay. Not because it's okay, but because God is here with you. So if you're sitting here today thinking, you know, I don't know why I'm even here today. Uh, either I know everything I'm going to hear uh, it's an old story, or there's no hope for me. Uh, one of the most fascinating things to me about this, this um, series of, of uh, Beatitudes is it speaks to every single one of us. Uh, and if we had time, we could all go around and talk about some of the tragedies and, and the issues that we see happening in the world around us and wishing and hoping that you could have been there before the young man this week committed suicide in Dallas. Uh, before the woman told her husband, it's, it's over um, here in California. Before somebody said, I'm, I'm not, I, can't, I can't hack it, I'm going to quit. Before they'd even really gotten going in their career or their graduate program. I, I can tell you those stories, and they, they weighed heavily on me this week. As I heard from friends of friends about these situations, um, a young couple, phenomenal young couple, and she's going to be in a psychiatric institute for three months, costing hundreds of thousands of dollars because her world has just unraveled. And her dear young husband is with her saying, what do I do? What can I do? And the family is doing everything to walk with them through that. If Jesus appeared to that young couple right now on the other side of the country going through this experience, he would say, blessed are you right now, right here. He would speak descriptively of where they are and it wouldn't be, but if you do this, if only, wow, what did you do to get in this situation? Uh, what he says is, God is with you. God is with you. Pay attention to him. And by the way, here's some things that follow on that. So here we are, uh, turning a corner into the fifth of eight uh, Beatitudes. Uh, Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now this is a slightly different pattern than the ones that have preceded. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall, uh, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Uh, blessed are those who mourn or brokenhearted, uh, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. All of a sudden now it's equivalent. The merciful will, will receive mercy. I want to unpack that with you as you walk uh, through the morning. Uh, we'll have a lunch break, we'll come back and finish up by dinner, and so it's going to be a great day. I just, I'm just so glad you're here. We'll be celebrating Holy Communion. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. This is Matthew 5, 7. So short. These phrases are so short, so pithy, uh, kind of cryptic, because they invite us to come in and go, I'm curious, what's going on here? What's happening here? Uh, when you hear that, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Whose name and face come to mind when you hear the word mercy? Oh, man, I, I think of Mary Rule's dad. There's a guy who was truly an epic dude. Um, passed away at 100 years old recently. Uh, Bronze Star winner, Purple Heart winner, uh, graduate of UCLA and Berkeley, junior high school science teacher, got a theological degree and ministered uh, God's grace to people. He was like the walking, talking version of this beatitude. He was a merciful person who was fun, fun to be with, uh, it, 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 so incredibly gifted in every way. I mean, he, he could out-ski you, he could out-yodel you. Um, but what he brought into your presence was a sense of mercy. Even if you didn't think you needed it, he was just that person who didn't you think so? I mean, he just brought this presence with him that made you feel anything is possible and it's going to be okay. And it wasn't, again, happy talk or wishful thinking. It was just his presence uh, in Christ. And so whose name and face come to mind when you hear the word mercy? I think of my mom. My, my, my mom was so merciful. I mean, she was just really good about calling you out on something, dealing with it, and then moving on. Uh, it was really powerful the way she did that. And I've, I, I've, um, it's just wonderful when you meet a person who is merciful. Now, people who are projecting on you all their stuff, and they do it in the, in the, sake, in, in the name of, I'm trying to care for you, but really it's all about them, that's not helpful. But truly merciful people uh, do something to us and in us that, that raises up our sense of hope and possibility. How and when have you received mercy? Can you think of some times in your life when it was over? You couldn't imagine a future. Uh, you don't know how you got there or you know exactly how you got there. Either way, it was embarrassing, humiliating, tragic, and here you were. And somehow, some way. Somebody spoke God's mercy to you or it was a merciful presence in your life and it was the very thing you needed. Um, I mean, thank God for the 12-step programs, the resilient versions of the 12-step programs where somebody can go in and say, I'm so broken, I don't even know how to describe it. And you say, hey, I'm Biff. And they say, hi, Biff, you know, and you're in the right place. How and when have you given mercy? Probably those of you who've been in a situation where you've been giving mercy professionally and personally, relationally, in your family, among your friends, know that oftentimes words aren't the most important part of it. Words matter. Uh, uh, instead of St. Francis, uh, you know, the head of the Franciscan movement, that uh, you know, preached the gospel and sometimes used words. That is an incorrect, that is not his words. If you read the, the biography of St. Francis, he did not say, preach the gospel, sometimes you use words. You said, use words to preach the gospel. And while you're speaking, you know, bring mercy. He didn't in any way disparage words. And so the idea isn't to be the silent presence. Uh, that gets spooky. Some of you are sitting there silent, and you're going, what? But the idea is those of you who have been merciful uh, consistently over a long period of time know that words matter, but as important as simply being present, Right? Uh, so first of all, first big idea of the morning is this. Mercy is about finding the redemptive pathway in every situation. I'm framing it theologically on purpose. Mercy is finding the redemptive pathway in every situation. And by redemptive, I mean mercy in this context that Jesus is speaking about it ultimately puts us in a place where we have access and proximity to God. The guy who can't move, he's on a bed, Four friends pick him up, take him to where Jesus is in the house teaching. They remove the tiles and, and the covering of the house on the roof because nobody can move in the house to get the guy in. They lower him down. The guy was no doubt, what are you guys doing? You know, embarrassed and this is not a good idea. And, and then when he gets down into Jesus' presence, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Oh, great, right in front of everybody, you know. You know. But then he says, uh, of course, there's a whole th other thing going on in that setting. But then he says, you know, pick up your bed and walk. You know, get up. See, those friends were showing mercy very powerfully. It was a redemptive thing. It connected this guy to Jesus. So when we are doing merciful things, we're not trying to fix people. And we're not even necessarily at that moment trying to tell them about Jesus and what it takes to 
know Jesus or walk with Jesus. We're simply in, in this interesting and powerful moment of seeing the redemptive possibilities that God can change things, these circumstances and change you in the midst of them. God can speak into this situation. It's not over. It's not done. There is hope. So this is a powerful thing we have to start off with. Mercy is about finding the redemptive pathway in every situation. It's not just being nice to people. Nice sometimes is very naive. It becomes codependent. You set people up to perpetuate. Oh, I know you're having a hard day. Here's some more crack. It'll help, you know. Uh, please, please, I need more. Of the, no, that, okay, fine, you know. But rather mercy is saying, what is the most redemptive thing I can do right now? Is it to comfort or to confront? Is it to stop quietly and say, can I pray for you and pray with them? Is it to remind them about what they already believe and help them reconnect to it? Uh, I wish I could have been with that uh, young man in his late 30s in Dallas this week, uh, super successful, this handsome guy. I mean, I'm thinking all these you know, things that are superficial, but if you looked at him, you go, this guy has got it all together. He was kind, caring, go for a dude. Uh, what was going on in him that was sucking the life out of him? And now all of his friends are desolate, saying, How? we didn't even see that coming. I, I'd want to be able to sit in that guy's presence because I know he, he had a relationship with Christ and say, hey, it's over. Let's just assume your life is over. It's horrible, miserable, and you're going to end it today. Right, that's what I'm going to do. Right, let's talk about how we end it. How about, let's end it by you not trying to run it anymore. Let's end it by you not putting all the stuff on yourself that makes you feel like you're not worth anything and you hate yourself and you want to end your life. Let's just end it. The life you've lived up to this point is done. Would it be okay if I walked with you into the next chapter of your life and invited some other people to walk into that next chapter with you? Because we agree, it's done. But right now, if you took your life, the devastation it would be for you and for your family, the ripple effect would be horrible for the rest of everybody's lives. This guy's parents right now. Imagine how horrible it was to wake up this morning, you know, three days after the fact. Every one of his friends are waking up, his former roommates are waking up going, dear God, what did I miss? What would I have said had I had the opportunity to say it? So there's this redemptive thing that is going on in showing mercy. Through the silence, through the words, through the expression of, of care and compassion. Powerful, powerful, powerful. So, so part of what we're doing in this redemptive pathway moment is saying, how do the works of God speak to this? And then how do the words of God speak to this? How do the works of God speak to this? God raised the dead. God healed the broken. God gave people hope who had no hope. If this guy said to me, um, well, look, I'm a believer, but I'm such an atheist the way I've been living my life, and, and I'm just, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a hypocrite. I would have said, yeah, blessed are you in your spiritual poverty, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. You see now we're all of a sudden going, whoa, this is where Jesus is speaking to, real people in real situations. So do we write people off, or do we help them write a better story in the, in the one that they're living? And, and all of us would say, I'm, gee, I'm not capable of helping a person write a better story. Not on your own, probably. Even the best counselors can't do that. What they can do is, is coax out of a person questions and reflection and a process of self-discovery that the grace of God and the truth of God speak into over time. Uh, Fuller Seminary was the first seminary to create a school of psychology, and they got hell for it. People were saying, oh, you've abandoned the Bible, you don't believe in prayer. How, how could you possibly do this? This was in the 70s. And they said, oh, what are you talking about? God made us as whole human beings. People suffer depression. And the, and the catalyst for it was, if you've ever heard of the name Weyerhaeuser, open up your milk carton, it'll say Weyerhaeuser. All, all the packaging and stuff, half of, the, half of it in America is made out of Weyerhaeuser lumber. And David Weyerhaeuser and his wife were godly go for people who funded so many Christian mission things and ministries, and whether it was Young Life or Fuller Seminary. And David Weyerhaeuser's wife was in constant, critical, ongoing uh, depression. And she prayed, and people would pray over her. She thought, I'm a failure as a believer. And people who were praying said, I must be a failure as a prayer. Finally, somebody who was a very godly, wise person said, you know, um, there's a lot going on here biochemically, and God wants to minister his grace to you, but the way we're going about it is right. It's just not enough. It's not, you know, psychology is better than theology. It's saying your theology includes this psychological approach. Her transformation was profound. 
and was, she was able to cope for the rest of her life. And when she hit those moments of chronically uh, bad depression, she had tools for dealing with it. You see the holistic nature of this? A redemptive approach is saying everything is available to us to see God work in somebody's life. It's like this couple uh, is going through this very difficult time. I want to say to them, you know, the marriage you've been living, it's over. Can you both agree about that? You just told him it's over. He's probably reeling over that, but also recognizing, yeah, I just, I'm in denial about it. I'd want to say to them then, what would it look like to rebuild your, your marriage together? Because what does it take for a good marriage? A willing man and a willing woman. If either of them are not willing, it's not going to happen. Now, sometimes you can be willing and they're not, and it's over. You know, we have a six-month speed bump in the state of California. Uh, as part of, a, some of you have heard me say this, I was blessed to be part of a, a ministry, a divorce recovery ministry in Orange County for a long time, and we had 14,000 people go through this. Hundreds and hundreds of children and youth go through it. And, and the whole point of it, we would try to communicate to people, that Christians, non-Christians, people would come to this church and we'd take them through this process. We'd say, you know, you can, you can either go through this or you can grow through this. Which would you like? And sometimes marriages came back together again, uh, but most often it was a done deal by the time people showed up. They were showing up on their own when the divorce is over. So now we're saying, like, how do we help people recover? So we don't write people off. We help them write a better story than the one they're in. How? Well, mercy is about applying empathy and compassion. Empathy and compassion, they're, they're, over, they're overlapping things, and together they're powerful. Empathy is simply being present, saying, um, I can't feel what you're feeling, but I want to do my best to identify with you in the midst of what you're feeling. And compassion is saying, what is it that I can do to help you? So empathy is a capacity to identify and understand feelings and needs. Uh, compassion is a commitment to doing something to help. And so we see that Jesus personifies empathy and compassion. You notice that? He was respectful of people, uh, but he also knew in, in his empathy how to get close to them and how to speak into their life and how to do things that would constructively change the way they saw their own life. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow, wait, he's being crucified. He's been humiliated publicly. And he's saying, Father, forgive the people doing this to me if they don't know what they're doing. That's called empathy. That's not lunacy. It's empathy. It's not approval or validation of what they're doing either. It's empathy. It is compassion. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't know that I'm here to be the Savior and they're part of this horrible thing that's going on. They didn't have to be part of this. It didn't have to go this way. I'm going to atone as a sacrifice. But they didn't have to be part of the way this rolled out. And yet here they are. And so they're accountable. There's consequences, of course. But he had empathy for them. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Jesus' mercy is expressed in empathy and compassion um, at the very heart of his mission. It's, it's at the heart of our mission. Remember what he said early on in his ministry. Mark records this in Mark 6, 34. We don't have slides for all these things. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had empathy for, for people. I get so frustrated when I read the paper about what's going on in our country. I have to step back and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They all have different motives. They all have different agendas. Uh, they're like a sheep without a shepherd. Uh, they're at cross purposes with each other. And um, I'm feeling harassed, even if they're not. I don't know. But, but so all of a sudden, empathy allows us to not take a distance and, and say, I'm done. I'm going to go away. Empathy gives us a chance to say, what is the appropriate distance here in terms of saying, get perspective? Empathy and compassion. Anybody who's doing horrible things is acting out of a bunch of stuff inside them uh, that is bigger than them, and they're, doing, they're going about it in the absolute wrong way to get help. What is Putin working out? What is the child molester working out? What is the hijacker working out? What is the whoever, what are they working out? And so we have compassion and empathy, even as we say, well, okay, we need to stop that. We need to do something about that. But we start to see it in a larger context. I remember the woman caught in adultery, harassed and helpless. Uh, she set up, basically, because Jesus is at the temple courts early, early in the day, and it just happens in this massive crowd of people, 
a, a smaller crowd show up with this woman saying, oh, oh, he just caught an adultery. Really? That was really uh, amazingly coincident. And they humiliate her in front of Jesus. And they say, you know, the, the law says she should be stoned. What do you say? Of course, you know the famous response. Let, let anyone who has never sinned throw the first stone. And they all go away. From the oldest to the youngest. And then he says to her, does no one condemn you? And she said, no. And he said, nor do I. Now leave this life of sin. Now I'm thinking, it's not written, and I'm, I'm taking some risks here, but he's in a crowd of people, and, he's, and, and there must have been a bunch of women there. We know there was a bunch of women who were part of Jesus' entourage as disciples, all the names we see listed. Can you imagine after she said, okay, that they didn't come up there and go, we'll help you make that, that move. There was empathy and compassion in that group of people that were following with Jesus. He didn't minimize her sin. He gave her the mercy she needed to recover from it. We don't approve people's sin. We don't try to rationalize that their behavior is okay. We start there. Look, I know they probably didn't mean to do it, but they did it. We're not minimizing sin and saying, oh, it's not that big of a deal. We're saying it's horrible at whatever level we, we see it. But then we're also saying, can I provide the mercy that this person needs to recover from it, to Grow through it, not just go through it. Sometimes prison is the best thing. Rehab is always a good thing. Counseling is a very valuable thing. Restitution is a wonderful thing. Restoration is a powerful thing, right? All that works. Who do you know that needs God's empathy and compassion right now? Somebody you'd rather write off and never see again. Somebody, if you could get revenge, you would. Somebody, that if you could just hurt them, you would. Is it possible that you could take a step back figuratively and, and, and start to see them from the perspective of blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy with empathy and compassion even as a way just for you to disengage from what it's doing to you because the bitterness and anger we feel toward people is like us drinking poison hoping they will die. It doesn't work. It erodes and corrodes us. It doesn't affect them. So Jesus is among us, comforting us so that we can comfort others in his name. It's probably uh, certainly one of the most beautiful gifts we can offer people, right? Comforting people in Jesus' name. What a powerful, amazing thing that is. People we don't like are enemies. Enemies in the sense that they might not even think of themselves as our enemies. They're just making life hard for us. They're doing unreasonable things. And we start praying for them. And we start asking the Lord to bless them. And to fill them with his love, and oh my gosh, we don't know what it will do for them necessarily, but we know what it starts to do for us. It right-sizes our understanding of who we are in Christ, because we touch on all those things that preceded this beatitude. We get in touch with our own spiritual poverty. We see our own brokenheartedness for what it is. We realize it's not easy for me to be meek and understanding. I don't always thirst for righteousness. I'm more comfortable thirsting and hungering for revenge. And Jesus counts every act of mercy as a blessing given to him. So mercy is opening your mind and heart to God and people saying, I care. It's opening your hand to God and people saying, I want to help. That might be rejected, dismissed, or, okay, um, I'd love to have your help. I don't even know how I need help. And you're saying, I don't either. Let's pray. Let's talk and figure where we can start with this. Don't be afraid to ask for mercy when you need it, and don't avoid giving it to others. Because mercy, giving mercy is messy, messy, messy. You can't, give it, you can't help everybody with every need. But there's going to be some person, some need that somehow speaks out to you, or that you're proximate to that you have access that nobody else would. Be wise and discerning, uh, but never resist your own need for it. And get over the embarrassment of saying, I, I need mercy right now. Really? You? You're such a together business guy. You're such a highly respected person here in Dallas. You have a swath of admirers here. You are amazing in what you do. You're kind. You're considerate. You reach out and help people. You, you move markets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that's true. And I thank God for that. But man, I am feeling like I'd rather not live. Powerful. Would you respect that man or would you disdain him? Your jaw would drop and you say, I had no idea. 
But you know what? I respect you even more for being willing to say that. Thank you for trusting me with that. I don't receive it as a burden. I receive it as an opportunity to care for you. And let's just figure out what we can do. And who might be the right people we can pull into this? It doesn't have to be a public announcement. Don't be afraid to ask for mercy. Don't avoid giving it to others. If you're sitting here right now thinking, I'd like to take my life, we'd like to know when. We'd like to be there. It sounds counterintuitive. If a person says to you, I'm thinking about taking my life, we think, oh, I don't want to say anything to set them off. Start by saying this. How long have you been thinking about that? Do you have a plan? What's your timing? Can I be there with you? That sounds so ridiculous to say that. But what it says to them is, you can't rattle me. I want to be with you and for you. Because what would rattle me is getting the news that you took your life. And what I really know is that if I ask to be with you and you say I can, you're, you're going to think twice. Or I could even be, at some point as you're talking about it, you can just say, okay, let's, let's do it tomorrow. And then tomorrow you say, let's do it tomorrow. So the AA thing, right? I'm going to start drinking again tomorrow. I'm going to start doing drugs again tomorrow. I'm going to start gambling again tomorrow. And just keep putting it off because you live one day at a time. Uh, Jesus' parable about the selfish servant comes to mind. You see this in Matthew. That woman uh, in adultery was John 8. But again, no scripture on this one. Matthew 18. A guy, a uh, king, calls in his servants and says, I want to settle accounts. It turns out this, this servant, and, and Jesus is telling this story because Peter said, how many times do I have to forgive people? Seven times? And Jesus said, well, how about 70 times seven? And he tells this parable. He says, you know, the king says to the man, hey, I've just realized, doing the audit, you owe me 10,000 bags of gold. That's an outrageous number, right? Because Jesus is making a point. The guy goes, whoa, uh, now what? He goes, well, I'm going to sell you and your family into slavery. That's what. Whoa, 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 I'll, I'll, give me a chance. I'll pay you back everything. And the king says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to forgive your debt. The guy walks out, sees a fellow servant, and as you know, the story goes, this guy owes him 100 pieces of silver. And he goes, hey, man, where's my money? Uh, I don't have it. I'll pay you back. No and has him thrown into prison. Other servants hear about it, go back to the king and say, guess what just happened? He calls the man back in, he says, hey, I gave you mercy. What did you understand about that? You're going to jail right now, and so you can pay me back. So Jesus tell these, tells these stories. Um, the man demanded justice from his fellow servant that wasn't given to him by the king. And, but the king eventually did give him justice. You've heard, you've heard this little um, summary of, of that. Justice means getting what I deserve. Mercy means not getting what I deserve. And grace means getting what I don't deserve. It's not original to me. You've probably heard it before. I find it brilliant. I first heard it from a, a, a fellow here in San Diego who is a now-retired federal judge. I thought, that's pretty good coming from a federal judge. Justice means getting what I deserve. Mercy means not getting what I deserve. Grace means getting what I don't deserve. And so it's about helping people when they're vulnerable and can't get what they need. The word mercy used here is the same word, it's a, der a derivation of the word for womb. It's a picture of a mother caring for the unborn child. The idea that this mother is doing everything possible to protect this child, to nurture this child, to allow this child to come into the world. It's a picture of, of once a child is born, the mother caring for that child. A mother would give her own life. A father would give his own life for that child. So that's the, the root of this whole notion of mercy. The other word that's used, um, so that's, that's the, um, the word rechem, rechemim, is you know, merciful. Uh, the other word is, is the word chesed. And when it says, um, when, when Micah, Micah 6, 8 says, you know, he's told you, O man, what is good? Uh, to, to do kindness, to love justice, to walk humbly with God. That do kindness is chesed. In some translations, it's to practice mercy. This mercy idea, compassion and loving kindness. So that's, that's, that's what it means to, to see mercy is about finding the redemptive pathway in every situation. Uh, two more points, much shorter. I guess we won't even have time to wait for lunch. We're going to get done earlier. So The question is then, what does it mean to be functionally merciful? I've already touched on it, but let me, let me go deeper with it. Being functionally merciful is connecting your heart with the heart of God. 
How do you connect your heart with the heart of God? Through His Word. If you're not reading the Bible, uh, you're missing out how to nurture your own heart. You've got a heart problem if you're not reading the Bible. Uh, one time, me and a guy who, uh, we, were, we were both in our 30s, we both had small kids, we lived in Newport Beach, we decided, gosh, we, we have a day off, let's go climb Mount uh, San Gorgonio on skis in the winter. Why not? we got a day. And so we raced up there first thing in the morning. We put our skis on. We're going up this, you know, 10,000 whatever it is foot mountain. And we, we stopped in this beautiful meadow. We're just super, you know, it's gone from sea level to this, you know, high elevation. And, and it's a beautiful day. And he looked at me. He goes, you know, this is when people like us die. I said, that's a really encouraging word up here on the mountain. He said, no, no, as a cardiologist, I see guys like us all the time. They're athletic, but out of shape. They're working like crazy people. They've got kids. They have all these required you know, commitments and responsibilities. So they're not really in shape, but they do stuff like this because they think they can do it. We are candidates for a heart attack right now. I said, well, with those happy words, why don't we just go back down and have lunch? You know? and so we were laughing about it the rest of the day, but it was a great message. I was thinking, yeah, okay. Right now, anybody in this room who says, I really don't need to read the Bible. I read it a little bit. I don't really need it. You are a candidate for a heart attack, a spiritual heart attack. You're, you're, there's hardening of your arteries, and you don't even know it. You know enough to get by, but you don't want you know what you don't know about your desperate, desperate condition. How do you connect your heart to the heart of God? It's not from some mystical thing with crystals and candles. I take the candle part and get rid of the crystals. It's not soft music in a well-lit room at a spa. I'm really feeling close to God. That can be wonderful. It's about the Word of God shaping your mind and heart. Changing the way you see you and the world around you. Reading the Bible, though, isn't the whole picture. It's the Holy Spirit putting you back together again. That's where prayer and meditation on God's Word. It's the people of God supporting you and encouraging you, calling you out on things as they need to. That is confronting you and then comforting you as needed. You see, this is the powerful thing about connecting our hearts to God. We can't do it on our own alone. We are responsible for our spiritual condition. So we start with, I'm reading the Bible, I'm praying. But I'm going to expand that. To, I'm going to talk about my reading with other people. I'm going to pray with other people. I'm going to let them in on my life. Who do you know that you can say today, I, today I just don't believe in God, and they wouldn't freak out? If you can't be an atheist every once in a while in front of your friends, they're not your friends. Everybody has those days and they go, I don't believe any of this anymore. Wow. I'm telling everybody. No, rather when he says, yeah, you too, I felt like that last week. Why didn't you say anything? I was embarrassed. Yeah, I feel like that sometimes. What do you think we should do? We should reconnect our hearts to the heart of God. That's what we should do. Our hearts become hard when we cease being merciful, kind, generous, loving. So it's not just a content thing, uh, it's a behavioral thing as well. We start to practice our faith. Uh, just doing wonderful things for the world without nurturing you through the Word of God and the Spirit of God is going to set you up for disaster. Why? Because you cannot save the world. And you'll become bitter because after a while you'll become cynical. These damn people don't deserve my help anymore. They just take advantage of me. These ungrateful people, these and fill-in-the-blank people, and all of a sudden you're going, what happened to the empathy and compassion? You're doing this because of you and you're expecting something from them that they're not a place to give you and you're holding them accountable for not fulfilling you. What do you understand about this? You're going to find mercy and they're not going to be, be, be the people necessarily who are going to give it to you. <sighs> I just don't feel fulfilled with these children. Well, no kidding, they're three. And they make demands and run reasonable at any time of day or night. You need some support, encouragement beyond those three-year-olds that are adorable and loving and make you so delighted to be their parent. Every person has a God-ordained need and responsible, responsibility to be merciful and to receive mercy. How's that going for you? Are you learning how to be merciful? No, no, I don't like being around people who bum me out. Well, you can't help everybody, like I said before. But who can you help? How can you use your time, talent, treasure to minister God's grace? in person, through a, a, a group effort. Here's the interesting thing about this beatitude. We don't just give mercy because of the need in front of us or the need all around us, as important as that is. We also give mercy because our need within to do what our Heavenly Father created us to do. We need to do mercy. It's part of how we connect our hearts to the heart of God. Not so that God will love us more. He loves us 100%. 
so that we can understand and experience his love more. Otherwise, you'll live in your head like you'll be a, Beret, a Brene Brown case study of making up stories in your head. A merciful life of loving sacrifice is the most satisfying life that we can live. A merciful life of personal sacrifice, going out of our way, inconveniencing ourselves to help others, is the most satisfying life we can live. See, mercy is the kind of sacrifice that God desires. Uh, because it reflects his character. We see this, Matthew in chapter 9, quoting Hosea 6, 6, says it this way. But go and learn what this means. And he quotes Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's God speaking to Israel. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Why? He told them they were supposed to sacrifice. Right. But after a while, it just becomes this automatic, yeah, we, we, we slaughtered another animal and sacrificed it. Let's go have lunch. You know why you walk by all the people who are starving and unclothed and harassed? What do we learn when we reflect on I desire mercy, not sacrifice? We learn that mercy is a personal act of sacrifice that, again, connects us to God. Animal sacrifice was a symbolic offering pointing us to God, who alone can save the world. Mercy is the personal sacrifice that allows us to participate with God's saving work in the world. Now, when I see sacrifice, it might not be you've given everything away and you don't know where you're going to live or what you're going to eat today. It's managing your life, though, in a way that it's part of your life. It's part of the architecture of your life. Before you figure out where you're going to go shopping, you say, how much money do I have? I'm going to give 10% of it to the purposes of God. Uh, before you figure out what your rest of your schedule is, you say, when am I going to worship God this week? When am I going to be in fellowship with people this week? When am I going to serve God this week? It's the big stones, little stones, sand, water thing in the jar, if you've ever seen that analogy. So it's not works righteousness trying to earn God's grace. Uh, salvation is a gift of God's grace. What it is, though, it's righteousness that works out His grace in acts of mercy that becomes a, our partnership with God in restoring His creation. There's a great Hebrew phrase, tikkun olam, the healing of the world. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And somehow, in some way, our small participation is significant. I don't know. It looks like you put your hand in a bucket of water and you pull your hand up, there's no impression. But that's not how it is. Again, every act of mercy is, is, a, is a sacrifice to God, is a blessing to God. So mercy is a means of grace and a sign of grace that God's gracious life is at work in you. A means of grace means something we do that we receive grace. Like, I open my heart to God. That's a means of grace. The cross is a means of grace. Opening my heart doesn't make me saved, but it opens me up to the fact that God can save me. It's also then an expression of that. If God is really in you, you are merciful. Literally, you're filled with mercy. Merciful, full of mercy. If, mercy is, if His mercy is in you, you'll do merciful things as part of your new identity in Christ. Why do you do those things? Are you trying to impress God? No. God has so impressed me, I want to do these things. You see the difference? I don't care if anybody knows I'm doing these things. In fact, I don't really pretty much tell anybody that I'm doing these things unless I'm in partnership with them. I don't walk around and go, you know, that's not how much I gave this last year. Here's how awesome I am. Now, somebody knows, they know, but we don't trumpet that. What we do is we just try to get the job done in the best way to get it done. And so by faith, anyone can receive God's mercy. And by faith, in Him, express it in practical ways. Have you received His mercy it just means you say, Lord Jesus, I invite you into my life. So if God is, is, um, is in you, you're going to resonate with this. And you won't be shocked when you stand before him someday, as Matthew describes in Matthew 25. It says, then the king will say, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed, needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the people were kind of bewildered, going, what? When did we ever see you in any of those situations? Lord, when did we, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison to go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. 
whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. That is not a guilt trip. That's a wake-up call. There's an opportunity, and are we, are we responding to that opportunity? It's not a have-to, it's a get-to. It's an opportunity to serve, to practice mercy. So here's the last point. By God's grace, we're blessed to be merciful and receive mercy. By God's grace, it's God's gift to us that we get to be merciful and receive mercy. And that's why we come to the Lord's table, because he refreshes us, he renews us, and he restores us to, into our right mind, our right heart. We remember who he is, we remember who we are in him. And we receive what we need to be merciful, because I don't have it in me. I'm, I'm perpetually a day late and a dollar short on the things I need. And yet God says, I will supply what you need. Turn to me, trust in me, walk with me, grow in me. Learn to listen to me. And you'll have exactly what you need as you need it. Uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Lord Jesus, I pray that this would be so powerful in us because you are in us. It wouldn't be about our good intentions or us feeling guilty or us wanting to impress you or ourselves or anybody else, but rather it's because your love is transforming the way we see us, transforming the way we see our circumstances and the people around us. You're giving us the courage to let go of our desire to control everyone and everything. You're calling us into vulnerability and humility that is a little uncomfortable for us. You're teaching us that our strength comes from you, and it's okay to be strong. We're not afraid of strength, Lord, but we want it to be in you, not in our own idolatry of what we think will give us strength. And so, Lord, we come to this table aware that you have invited us, you call us into your presence to refresh us and renew us and restore us for your purposes in us. We pray this and thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. So those of you who are going to uh, serve communion, come on up. Uh, there's a station back there, a couple up here. On the night that he was betrayed, uh, Jesus took bread. He broke it saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It was at a meal when he was teaching his disciples what was going to come. They didn't quite understand it like we don't most of the time. But he says, learn from me, listen to me, and, and do this in remembrance of me because I'm going to be in you and working through you. And likewise, he took this cup of wine. He said, this cup is the new covenant, the new relationship made possible through my sacrifice, through my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we come into his presence, and I wish we had time for a big, long meal where we're hanging out and talking. But this is a meal that reminds us that we are in communion constantly with the Lord. So as you hear the music play, come up and, and take one of these, open the part that has a, the, the, the wafer in it first, eat the wafer, then open the part that has the juice in it, uh, the non-fermented grape juice, uh, and receive Holy Communion. So come when you're ready and worship the Lord um, in Holy Communion.
son and daughter in the king when you have a relationship with Jesus and nothing and no one can separate you from his love and if, if we can do anything we can if we, we would like to do anything we can to help you make the first or the next step in that relationship with him and if we can pray for you today about anything that concerns you or anybody that you're concerned about go right out the door after the worship service and around and there's a beautiful little garden there a prayer garden and there'll be people there who will say can I pray with you can I pray for you and if you want to give them something, uh, great. If you, don't, if you just say, no, I don't even know what to ask for. Just pray for me. They'll do that. And then get something to eat, hang out a little bit, uh, get, meet some new people, and have a great rest of the day and week. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us all, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe.